everyone, and welcome to the July episode of the Empower Women series podcast. For this month, we invited Kirsten Metter to talk about understanding ESG investing. Kirsten is an ESG and SRI investment strategist at Aperio. In this role, she works with clients to align their equity portfolios with their values. I know that ESG investing is top of mind for quite a few of our clients, and so I think that this is a really great and informative podcast episode. Um, Definitely looking forward to you all hearing it. Before we dive in, I do want to highlight our next two Empower Women series events. On August 9th, we have Erica Berman, who will talk about Feeding My Soul, from luxury vacation rentals in Paris to a nonprofit farm feeding the hungry in Maine. I know that this is a little bit different than a lot of our Empower Women series podcast topics, so definitely looking forward to hearing it on September 13th. We're welcoming Lauren Lowing to talk about mindfulness and our relationship with money, which is also really great and a really important topic to talk about. Before we jump into the episode, I do want to say that we actually used a different format for our podcast for this month. We recorded straight from the webinar, as you'll hear. Of course, we had consent from everybody listening, and the questions that you'll hear throughout the podcast that were asked we're all from Lexington staff, but we thought we would just give this format a try. So without further ado, let's jump right into the podcast. Thank you everyone for attending July's Empower Women series. Um, we're also going to be recording today's session, so we'll be able to share that um, in our podcast for anyone that is interested. Today we have um, a friend from Aperio, Kirsten Meter, Kirsten Meter, just cor- correct myself there. Um, she's great. I've heard her speak many times. She's going to talk to us today a little bit about ESG and impact investing. Uh, lots of questions around this, especially since we just saw Tesla get kicked out of one of the indices. So I have a lot of questions about that. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you, let you introduce yourself a little bit, and then... Um, we can kick it off. So thank you. Sounds good. And thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name's Kirsten Mater, and I'm an ESG and SRI investment strategist at Aperio Group. Um, you know, I came to work in the ESG space um, through a very probably unconventional <laughs> background. Um, my background's actually in physics and astronomy, um, which is probably not uh, what, where most people start. Um, but I ended up after that uh, doing a, a brief stint and, and some work for a professor at Columbia, uh, uh, deciding that I was not going to be an academic for the rest of my life and uh, switched over to finance, which was something I'd always been very interested in. Um, I spent the early part of my career working in New York, um, doing analysis and due diligence on hedge funds. Um, so pretty much anyone you've read about in the news over the last 10 years, I've probably met. Um it was a, a very interesting start, especially because I started in 2007 and was there kind of at the heart of everything melting down during the financial crisis. Um, and then after a couple of years doing that, I moved back to California and joined a startup where I was one of five people um, for a small asset management firm um, that was doing tax managed separately managed accounts. Um, and I was in charge of doing our alternative investing um, as well as managing our tactical and strategic asset allocation for clients. Um, so I was there for about 10 years and 
after a while, I kind of started to get a little bit restless. Um, I think part of it was the fact that I had kids, um, you know, and, and I, if, for those of you with kids, it can completely shake up your perspective, I think, uh, <laughs> and it make you a little less focused on, on yourself and, and all that. Um, and so I, I'd been doing a lot, kind of doing the career path, traditional kind of um, go, going through my career was a portfolio manager, all that kind of good stuff. And then I think I just woke up one day and felt like uh, my job kind of lacked meaning um, as much as I enjoyed making rich people richer. Um, it, it, it kind of felt like it lacked a little bit of substance. And so for me, I had a little bit of kind of a, a 30-year-old career crisis um, at that point and started to get much more interested in ESG investing and impact investing. Um, you know, I, I kind of have always had a orientation towards community service and philanthropy, um, just my whole life growing up involved in a lot of different types of projects and with different organizations. Um, and I started to get really frustrated. You know, I'd be on these calls with investment managers where they'd be talking about how great company X was or how bad company Y was and why they were going long or short or, you know, like certain companies. And nobody would ever talk about what the companies were doing, right? They were talking about how much money they're making, what their forecast earnings are, you know, why they're better than their competitor, but they would never talk about how they treated their employees. They would never talk about what types of um, sustainable business practices they had. Um, it was all just about the money, um, which is great. You know, I'm, I'm not critical of that. I, I do believe in capitalism to, to an extent, um, certainly working in the space. Um, but it felt like there could be so much more that companies were doing, that people were doing, that investors were doing. Um, and this kind of coincided with kind of the, the second rise of ESG and impact investing, I'll call it. Um, you know, there, there was an initial interest in the space uh, dating back to the 70s, kind of as when the first, first movement started. Um, but that died away pretty quickly as kind of a fringe movement of, you know, either some faith-based investors that were focused on um, kind of morality-based investing um, or, you know, people that perhaps were more kind of the environmental liberalists and hippies that are kind of just, you know, the, the tree huggers and all that kind of stuff. But it never really got traction um, in, in terms of getting interest from either asset management firms or from investors. Um, and so go back to, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, and we started to see a handful of funds and firms start to launch ESG products. Um, and these were generally still actively managed funds where you had portfolio managers picking securities, but they're also starting to look a little bit more at ESG data and particularly through the lens of materiality. Um, so, you know, the less less incented to invest in those condo developers on the waterfront in Miami, you know, because the sea levels are rising and, you know, that that financially would not be good um, from an investment perspective, things like that. Um, and it was really interesting because at that point, um, the, the narrative was still around ESG investing um, being potentially concessionary, right? Um, or, or that you could have similar returns to a benchmark, um, but with less risk, right? Uh, and, but people still weren't really talking about impact. It was framed from the perspective of, of risk. You know, you could have less risk and the same returns, or, or potentially you could have higher returns if you pick the right companies, um, but also higher risk. And all these different firms were trying to put out research to document the fact that you could generate ESG alpha or that you'd have lower risk, uh, you know, based on a year of data. Um, 
And so at that point for me personally, I had been following the space. I was kind of interested in transitioning my career to focus more on ESG and impact investing. Um, and really, I think for me, it, it stemmed from a place of being frustrated that companies um, were generally getting away with maximizing profits without being subject to paying or in some way kind of being responsible for a lot of the negative externalities that their products and services cause. Um, and I think for me in particular, looking at a lot of the, the packaging and waste, um, whether it was food waste, whether it's looking at just like downstream plastic and, and packaging and things like that, um, a lot of it would fall to consumers uh, to, to have to kind of, and, and municipalities to have to pick up um, the mess uh, that, that they left behind. And so I actually ended up going back to school. I got my master's, um, which seemed like a great thing to do with a, a two and a four-year-old at home uh, while still working. Um, but it was great. And I, you know, for me, I think it was really that rejuvenating factor I needed to help find some, some purpose and traction um, in, in what I was doing career-wise. And um, it enabled me to transition to continuing to help people invest their money, which I, I genuinely have always enjoyed doing. I, I, the, you know, the financial markets are fascinating to me. The, fin the, the psychological aspect of, of asset management and money management and planning and, you know, the time value of money and all of that um, is, is fascinating. So now I, I feel very fortunate that I get to continue to help people to, to grow their wealth, um, many of whom actually end up donating and, and giving away much of it. Um, but to do it in a way that resonates with people's purposes um, and, and the issue areas that they care about. You mentioned one thing, you touched on the fact that in the past there was myths around performance. Can you just touch quickly on like what performance has looked like more recently in the space compared to like what traditional investments? Yeah, I think um, it's been all over the place, honestly. And I think that you could probably find a set of data or a particular fund or product to make whatever argument you want to make, right? Whether you're trying to say it's, it's leading to outperformance or, or it's not. Um, one of the things that's really interesting and I think is, is a bit of a blessing in disguise that I didn't appreciate when I, when I joined Aperio, um, the way we construct portfolios, we're actually continuing to try to give that benchmark like risk and return as closely as possible while also incorporating client values. Um, depending on which firm you're looking at, you know, you can have a product um, based on the way it's constructed that is going to eliminate entire sectors or perhaps be really concentrated, you know, and so it works when it works and it doesn't work when it doesn't work. Um, but I think the, the benefit of approaching this type of investing from a values perspective and from wanting to find things that speak to you that resonate with the things that you care about um, and ultimately build a portfolio that you can feel good about owning, I think is, is really kind of where the focus is. Um, we have had a lot of conversations, um, probably not surprisingly, a lot of investors that are interested in ESG. Um, global warming and environmental issues always come up. I think they've always have come up. I think it uh, will continue to, to come up. Um, and, and that's irrespective of whether, you know, a, an individual or organization's focus is on DEI or racial justice or environment. Um, and so, you know, we work with a lot of people and there are certainly funds and products out there that, for example, exclude the entire energy sector or exclude fossil fuels and coal companies and things like that. Um, and if you look at 
look back over the last couple of years, um, people who have made that choice, whether it was from a values perspective or whether it was because they felt that those were um, stranded assets and those companies were going to kind of medium long term underperform, um, whatever the motivation for that decision was, you, you've seen that bear out, right? And so if you look back two, three years, people who did not have exposure to energy companies um, would have outperformed on a relative basis. It's also a pretty volatile sector, right? So your risk is probably a little bit lower. Um, but we've seen this year with the, the war in Ukraine and Russia, um, oil prices are sky high, energy companies are doing really well. And so people who have had that exposure removed from their portfolios, they've been lagging from a performance perspective lately. Yeah. And that makes it really hard, I think, for the individual investor, because you you know, you think you're maybe doing the right thing because you're looking at it, like to your point through one lens, but then mm -hmm. when you look at it in a different way, you're actually not. So I think for the individual investor, it's really challenging to, I guess, you know, sift through all of this stuff. And um, so I think that's why it's super important to have like, you know, folks like yourself or folks like us as an advisor to to be, to be able to say, what's, what's super important to you? Like, let's prioritize those things because mm -hmm. we can build, you know, we can build an investment strategy that gets you to the core things that are important to you. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody's different, right? Like every person is different. So. Yeah. And the thing that's actually really interesting is, um, when you ask somebody that, and, and maybe I'm not sure what your experience has, has been working with your clients, when you actually ask somebody what they care about, you know, people kind of rattle off a token response or two, but a lot of people actually just haven't thought about it really, you know, they haven't really sat and thought about it in those terms. And this was actually one of the most interesting exercises and probably one of the hardest things I had to do um, in, in grad school in a class I took on leadership. They actually made us sit down and come up with personal, you know, vision, mission, values, values um, yeah. exercises, right? And I think that's something that a lot of people have just never thought about doing. They could probably say, oh, I care about the environment or I care about my local community, um, but to actually have to distill it and, and winnow it down to a few specific words and, and phrases and stuff um, is actually something that I think is incredibly valuable. Um, it's a really interesting exercise too, talking about ESG investing. Um, you know, there's a ton of data and statistics out there that support the rise of ESG as part of the um, the, the transition from kind of the older generation of wealth to the, the millennials and the younger generation and how ESG is like a really good um, uh, sticking point because they're looking for more engagement around issues and things that they care about and they want their money to be supporting you know, good companies, if you will. Um, and so it's, it's been really interesting, you know, having those types of, of discussions and conversations um, with your, your spouse or partner or with your children or your parents, you know, it, it, it's actually a, a really interesting opportunity to, to kind of deepen relationships and also help figure out ways to have more impact with your capital at the same time. Right. Yep. Can I ask a question about, so one of the things that I see um, is, you know, they say with all the greenwashing, you have to be careful about how you get exposure, but sometimes like a client or may have accessibility through an account where they only have like one option, it's an index, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So I'm just curious, like your thoughts on like, you know, if you do want to get the exposure, I mean, how selective, you know, if it, if you really believe in it and you want to do it, like how careful and selective should you be about how you're getting your exposure? Yeah, and, and first kind of just tell, tell everyone what greenwashing is. So everybody knows. <laughs> yeah. Um, so probably not surprisingly with with ESG becoming more popular, um, there are firms and individuals that kind of overstate the impact of what they're doing. Um, I think some of the the primary criticism around this has come towards indexes, um, where you're having an ETF track an index um, and emphasize kind of better companies, right? But better um, companies, say, with lower carbon footprints or more environmentally friendly or just general better ESG characteristics. But then if you look at top holdings in some of these, these products, um, you'll see, you know, Exxon's still in there and Chevron. You know, so people are kind of like, well, I thought I was buying something that was environmentally friendly, that was a good ESG company. Why am I holding all these companies that I might consider to be bad companies? Um, and greenwashing is really interesting. Um, you know, I think it's a easy thing for people that are critical of ESG to, to levy at any product or firm that's trying. I think I personally am in the camp that um, if, if a a company that's doing some type of ESG or impact investing, they need to be transparent about what they're doing, what they're not doing, what you're getting, what you're not getting. Um, and, and so I think one of the challenges is that actually often in the media, you know, with the kind of short Twitter soundbite attention spans that a lot of people have, um, some things are getting a little bit misconstrued where, where the genuine purpose of some of them w- was not necessarily greenwashing or, or misaligned or, or kind of hidden. Um, we've seen recently a couple of, of um, accusations made against some, some big investment companies for greenwashing. And I think there, there are cases where companies have intentionally lied about what they're doing which I would absolutely consider greenwashing. And, and even more than that, it's just, it's, it's unethical. You shouldn't be doing that, right? You should be a good fiduciary and steward of your investors' assets. Um, and I think then there are other cases where perhaps just information isn't shared, maybe due to oversight. Um, and, and then there are cases where it's transparent, but I think there are limitations to what you can do in your investment portfolio, right? And and this is something that I see in conversations with clients and prospective clients every day, where people will come in, either their options are limited um, because perhaps they're using a certain, um, they're, they're investing through a certain platform or things like that, where they don't have a lot of options in terms of ESG investing. Um, or perhaps they come in and, and they're really passionate about a particular particular issue that is just really hard to address through a public equity or a fixed income portfolio, right? So there's certain areas and and issue topics, for example, affordable housing is something that comes up a lot in conversations, particularly with people here um, in in the Bay Area, because it's it's such a crisis. um, And and unfortunately, it has been for a long time. But there's not a lot of companies, whether you're looking to buy equities or bonds, uh, that you can actually invest in to to support more equitable housing and access to affordable housing. Um, You know, you could potentially invest in a company that's made a commitment to build, you know, X percent of their units as affordable or something like that. But it's still, it it ends up being kind of a few steps removed from the type of of impact that somebody might be looking to have. Um, Equal access to healthcare or education comes up a lot too, 
right? Uh, but for better or worse, um, <laughs> probably depending on, on where you live, um, you know, they, they're, they're not publicly investable education companies, most of that's run through the government, um, right? So, so it, it's hard sometimes to address these issues. Um, as to your specific question, I would say it really is going to depend on each individual client, right? For, for some people, having something that is a start or is at least part of the way there is better than having nothing at all. Um, other people are really interested in just maximizing um, the alignment of their dollars with with their capital. And you know, some of the ESG products, I think from a price perspective, they've it's come down significantly over the last couple of years. Um, you know, buying a straight S&P tracking index compared to an ESG aware S&P index, you're still going to pay a slight premium, but it's not a huge difference. But if you start to look at perhaps actively managed ESG products, you know, that, that fee can increase. So it really is going to depend, I think, on what's right for each individual client in the context of their broader asset allocation and investment goals. Um, which I think is probably where you need to start. And then if you can find something that's going to meet their values objectives, um, but also fit into that framework, um, you know, right. the, the other thing I would offer too is that like ESG, you know, 3.0, maybe 4.0, like we're, we're in kind of, you know, another resurgence of this. And um, I, I do actually think it's going to stick this time, I, I wasn't here for the last couple of times, really, uh, to, to the extent that some of my colleagues have been. But it was actually interesting because in grad school, a lot of my um, my my friends in my program were they'd started their own nonprofits or were kind of on the the nonprofit side, um, and I was the lone person who was going back to the business world to make money. Um, and it was really interesting because I kept talking about ESG and impact investing, and um, one of my professors who's been in the space. Um, for probably like 70 years, 60 years. Um, he started Social Enterprise Alliance, all this stuff. He's like, oh yeah, I've seen this happen. I tried to start an ESG fund. I tried to start an impact vehicle, you know, like, uh, you know, 10 years apart over his whole career. Um, and he's like, I don't know, it's just going to be another trend. But um, I think the number of products that are coming out, um, whether they're ETFs or active or, or private investment opportunities is, is incredible. I think you see a lot of the big investment firms actually committing um, to making this not only a core part of their business offerings and products offerings to meet client demand, but you know, more and more companies are starting to have CSR departments, right, where you have a chief sustainability officer who's actually trying to help run a company better. Um, and I think that's a big switch that we've seen even just over the last five years where companies are starting to realize that having that type of commitment is, is kind of becoming table stakes, right? And it was one of the things where for a long time, I think individual companies knew that their statistics and their data, whether you're looking at DEI or environment or, or governance, weren't great. And so I think a lot of people didn't want to report on that type of stuff. Um, but once other people started to, you kind of have to. And so this is actually one thing that I've, I found really fascinating. Um, you know, you're hearing more and more people on quarterly calls mention ESG investing, mention their corporate social responsibility, mention materiality and externalities. They're starting to use the vocabulary um, on corporate calls. And while many of them are still just kind of traditional companies that are trying to maximize profit for shareholders, they're starting to pay attention to this, right? Um, and the thing that I actually think is even more exciting is that, um, you know, there, there are a few companies that are starting to try to actually convert 
into benefit corporations, um, which is different from a B Corp, which is kind of a little seal of approval that you're a good company. Um, but you can actually change your company or if you start a company um, and, and form a benefit corporation where in, in your charter documents, instead of just having a statement of what your company is doing, you can have a dual statement to focus on profit as well as doing business in a sustainable way. And it, it legally protects companies from perhaps making decisions that favor sustainability or good practices or good you know, um, human rights and employee kind of relations and benefits over just maximizing profit for shareholders. Um, and so that, that's another thing I think is really exciting. So I do think we're actually seeing change. I think this might be a bit optimistic uh, or, or naive perhaps, but um, I, I do hope that eventually there won't be an ESG index or an ESG product because hopefully just every company actually becomes a good company. And then we'll go back to the part of where we were, you know, 10, 15 years ago of just picking companies based on their, their future ability to make money because they'll all be doing it in a sustainable way. Right. That, yeah, <laughs> that, I, I love the, um, I love the, you mentioned the stamp like that. That's interesting. And I think if more companies got that, that'd be great. Just tell us, a, tell us more about how companies like yours, like Aperio, how you f- hold these companies on like on track. How do you really know that they're doing what they're doing or not doing what they're not supposed to be doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, so we don't actually do individual fundamental analysis on companies. I think all of us, uh, you know, individually pay attention to companies and issues that, that we're interested in. Um, a, a lot of that is actually really being done by all of these ESG data providers. Uh, they've got teams of fundamental analysts out there that are engaging with companies. Um, there are, in, in terms of ESG data, that that space has exploded, right? There's a number of kind of core data providers that have been around for a while, but every week I get emails from new ESG data upstarts, right? Whether they're using AI and neural networks or all this kind of stuff, um, you know, people are really focusing on it, which is great because it's putting pressure on companies to have to disclose more. Um, I think Europe is pretty far ahead of the US in terms of all these frameworks and disclosure requirements by companies. And so they have a little bit more of a standardized data set and um, in the US we're playing catch up a little bit right now, Um, but they're getting data. And I think it's one of those things, right? I forget whatever the, the cliche is, you know, you, you have to measure it for it to matter or kind of one of those things. Right. And so a, a company honestly may not even be aware of perhaps their DEI statistics, for example. Right. But as soon as you got to start reporting that number to somebody, um, and as soon as that number starts to be publicly reported, um, you're, you're going to make, make strides to kind of improve those, those statistics. Um, so you, it, it's, It's really interesting and and the pressure on companies to really kind of evolve and adapt and change comes from a number of different places. Um, One of the things I always like to to talk about, we we get asked a lot, you know, how do I know if I'm having real impact, right? That's really what what people want at the end of the day. They they would like financial returns that are kind of on par with what they would expect, but they want to feel like they're doing something good with their money at the same time. in reality, we're all kind of just small fish owning small shares of these really giant companies. Um, but in aggregate, you know, I, I really do believe there is power of shareholders to impact and influence companies. Um, one of the ways this happened recently, which I find fascinating because this just happened in the last couple of years since I've, I've joined Aperio, um, 
When I joined, there were a handful of companies, uh, more than a handful um, of companies in the S&P 500 that had no women on their boards of directors. And if you were going to look at companies and assess whether or not they had racial or ethnic minorities on the board of directors, you'd be probably eliminating half the companies in the S&P. Um, you look at what was happening from a macro political standpoint in our country a few years ago with um, all the, the police shootings and the Black Lives Matter movements. Um, you know, there was really a lot of pressure on companies to start to do better. You know, what are you going to do? What are you going to commit? Clearly, the, I think that the government was not acting in a way that was resonating enough with, with people. Um, so you started to see companies make commitments and it started to become um, table stakes that you needed to have diversity on your board. Whether or not companies did that because they genuinely believed in the benefits of diversity or whether they were just trying to check a box because they didn't want to get left behind, it's a, a different discussion. Um, <laughs> and, and I hope that even for the companies that were box checking, that once they did check the box, they realized the benefits of having uh, more diversity of, of experience on their boards. Um, but if you look at it now, just two years later, there's not a single company in the S&P 500 that does not have a woman on their board of directors, right? Um, there's only, uh, I wanna say, I think it was 11 or 12 um, companies that do not have a racial or ethnic minority on their board of directors. So that's real tangible change that we've actually seen over just the last couple of years. And um, I think because that was something that was so public um, around calling on companies to make those types of changes, uh, it, we reached a little bit of a tipping point and you didn't want to be the one company left behind, right? right. So you, you also started to see ESG funds and indexes include criteria for board diversity, right? So you didn't want to be the, the unviable company because you weren't diverse. Um, but I think more than anything, you don't want to be called out and kind of have the negative press um, around some of that. So I think, you know, you, you can see the impact of, of collective action and pressure on changing company behaviors. Um, another great way to actually have more tangible impact is, is through voting proxies and, um, you know, participating in shareholder engagement opportunities to pressure companies, if that's something that that's available to you. Um, I think the, pro the proxy thing is, I feel like a lot of people just feel like it's just one more like, you know, piece of junk meal that they get and they don't realize the value. Um, yeah, I think companies could do a better job of making the proxies a little easier to read and not so much like <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I look at them all the time for our clients and I'm like, geez, they make them so complicated. You're not even clear on what you're voting for. So yeah, it would be nice to see those things shortened and cleaned up a little bit. I, 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 got to be honest with you, I'm really bad. I don't vote half of the proxies I get in the mail, which I know is horrible because I spend all day talking to people about how impactful it is, right? But um, I think, unfortunately, the, the nature of the beast is, you know, it's who do you want on the board of directors? Here's a list of 30 candidates. I'm like, right. I don't have time to research these people, right? Yeah. So I think that's actually one of the benefits sometimes of, of some of these ESG products um, at, at various firms um, is that they vote proxies on your behalf. Now, some people, for example, might be, be critical of that. Like, how do you know they're voting in your best interest or would pick things that, that would align with what you as a, um, an individual would, would want? Um, you're starting to see organizations try out proxy voting choice programs. Um, you know, you're starting to see people that are using socially responsible investing proxy voting policies, things like that. 
Um, and so I think it is something that we're going to continue to see uh, evolve over the next probably five years. I, I hope that they, they make it easier um, for, for all of us. <laughs> um, it's a little bit like when you get the ballot for elections, right? Everyone votes in the presidential elections, um, but really voting at the local level is probably going to be more impactful um, on, on, every, on your daily lives, right? But, you know, who are these 10 people running for, uh, you know, the, the local transit agency supervisor position or, or you know, like, you have no idea. Um, <laughs> it always makes me think of that. But there, there are good ways to have more tangible impact. And that's something that we we talk to people a, a lot about is there's ways you can build a portfolio. You can exclude companies that you don't want to own that perhaps um, are participating and in, in, um, producing products and services that don't align with your values. You know, the exclusions are pretty well used across a suite of ESG products. Um, a, a lot of different offerings will score companies on certain issues and kind of either emphasize or de-emphasize companies with better or worse scores. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it does kind of come back to how much impact is that really having? And I think the most powerful thing is that if you can find an investment option that aligns with the issues you care about, you're going to be happier owning what you own when the market's down. Because exactly. you still feel good about the companies that you have in your portfolio, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and so I think, you know, in our experience, it, it leads to, to stickier assets. It leads to more satisfied and, and invested clients um, because they're interested in continuing to support companies that are, are doing well. Um, and, right. you know, ho hopefully collectively we'll all kind of change the system at some point. <laughs> I, I have a quick question, actually, as a non-finance person, is there like a tool, say I want to, you know, look at companies, is there like one or a resource that would be good for the non-financial people to really kind of start to look and start to research, um, you know, ESG companies? Yeah. So that's a, a great question. Um, I think I would offer two different avenues for that. Um, one is you could just, if around specific companies, right, you can always just kind of Google and take a look at them. A lot of companies now actually, or, or U.S. companies are starting to put out um, annual reports that talk about what their policies and practices are. Um, they tend to only highlight the things they're working on and not the things that they're continuing to ignore, but you can find information about what specific companies are, are committing to and that. Um, depending on the company, sometimes they're front and center on their corporate websites. Sometimes they're hidden beneath like eight different clicks into weird, weird folders and stuff like that. Um, so that's a good way to, to find out what individual companies are doing. More broadly, it's a little bit more challenging because that's the kind of thing that a lot of data providers collect information on and, and you know, want to sell you licenses for. Um, as you so, which is a shareholder advocacy group, um, they had on their website a fund screener. So I think you can type in a mutual fund name or, um, uh, you know, you, you can kind of do a sample loadout of a portfolio and it'll, it'll show you some basic characteristics. It's going to be based on kind of the things that they're looking at and they code into there, which I think is the downside of, of anything you could find. Um, that's, uh, called what, that's called as you show. Um, as you so. S-O-W. Um, so, so they have a tool that, that could be a good place to maybe start looking. Um, they do a lot of shareholder engagement work um, and, and have been around for a while. Um, 
That's yeah, I think just just kind of asking questions. Um, I, I think it's one of those things that can be challenging, though, because for people that are asking those questions and looking at it and saying, okay, I'm okay with this. I'm not okay with that. I know where I want to draw a line and what companies I would own and not own. It's not always easy to find a product out there that's going to match up exactly with what you're looking for, right? Um, so I guess it's, sometimes it's a little bit of the, you know, are you going to wait for it to be perfect? Or, you know, going back to the question from earlier, is better just have, have some kind of ESG exposure that on the margin is better. And as products become better and customization offerings become better and, you know, the reporting and stuff it gets better, um, you know, hopefully it'll benefit and, and serve investors. Exactly. This is this has been really great. It's been super informative. Is there anything else that you want to leave us with um, or any final questions that we have? I think, um, you know, just it, encourage people who are at the beginning of thinking about impact investing or ESG um, to really actually to sit and think through what are my values? What do I care about? One of the things we talk about a lot in, internally in, in our team and, and that I always struggle with myself too is, you know, what are you willing, it, people are good at complaining, right? People are easy at pointing out the things they don't like, um, figuring out solutions and taking action to kind of affect changes is hard work. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes sacrifice. Um, and it, it, honestly, it's going to take collective sacrifice by a lot of people to, to change things. Um, and, and for, for a lot of people here in this country, we're a very individualistic society and not a collective society like um, some, some other places are. But I think that the thing we always come back to is what are you willing to sacrifice or what are you willing to give up that you don't want to give up, right? Like that's really the first question I think that, that we all need to be asking ourselves if we're passionate about racial justice or human rights or environmentalism, you know, like what I would love love it was like my dream since I was like 15 to have a, a Camaro right and they have these amazing Camaros that have like 500 horsepower and they're great and I can actually probably afford to buy one at this point right but I like for me that's the one thing I'm, I have an electric car and it's hideous <laughs> but it's effective and efficient and you know there's there's some pros and cons of uh, you know the batteries and all the mining and stuff right but for me it's it's like, that's something where I'm like, man, every time I see one on the road, I go by, I'm like, man, that's great. But also it's getting, you know, 12 miles a gallon and, you know, polluting the environment. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so I just think, you know, think as you're assessing companies, as you're asking other people to change, what are you willing to give up um, is something that I think is, is an important question. And then um, I think too, just being aware that it's a journey. It's, it's an ESG journey for all of us as individuals, the things that you care about and you're passionate about, you know, they evolve and change over time. Companies, a lot of them are just kind of starting out on this. Unfortunately, it's, they could have started a lot sooner, but at least, you know, it's, it's starting at some point. So I think just having uh, some grace for individuals as well as, as people running companies as they're trying to figure this out, because not everything people do and companies do is going to be the right thing, but I think as long as there's there's effort and we're moving in the right direction, it's it's a positive. Um, well, thank you again so much. This is excellent, Kirsten. Um, we we thank Aperio as well for letting us have some of your time and um, just again, thank you and have a great day. Thank you. And yeah, if anyone has questions, if they listen to the podcast, feel free to to send me an email. Happy to talk to anyone. Thank you.
The Empowerment Series was created by Lexington Wealth Management to offer space for women to come together and feel supported by one another in a safe, judgment-free environment. When we share our experiences and knowledge, we are able to learn from each other. Our mission is to empower women and girls from all walks of life to speak up, ask questions, and learn. The Empowerment Series takes place on the second Tuesday of every month at noon, and the podcast follows. Thank you for listening. Lexington Wealth Management is a team of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with SEC. All securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC, and advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is risk-free, and there is no guarantee that the investment process described herein will be profitable. Investors, Investors may lose all of their investments. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. In preparing these materials, we have relied upon and assumed without independent verification the accuracy and completeness of all information available from public and internal sources. Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to their accuracy or completeness or for statements or errors contained or in omissions from them. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Third-party links and references are provided solely to share social, cultural, and educational information. Any reference in this post to any person or organization or activities, products, or services related to such person or organization or any linkages from this post to the website of another party do not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring of Lexington Wealth Management or Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates, employees, or contractors acting on its behalf. Hightower Advisors LLC does not guarantee the accuracy or safety of any link site. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the clients' individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions. Copyright 2021 Hightower.